This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located on 42nd Street, right in the heart of the theater district. It's where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway meet. And here in New York is where the best of the theater goes out across the country, and the best across the country comes back <coughs> to New York. It is truly a meeting place of theater. The American Theatre Wing is perhaps best known for its Tony Awards, but it's more than that. It's a year-round organization. It's an organization that provides seminars, seminars such as this on working the theater, where the most talented, the most experienced give of their time and their energies to share their knowledge, not only with each other, but with students and with people across the country. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, and part, again, of our all-year-round programs is our Saturday Theatre for Children, once more a theatre-supported community project. Professional live theatre goes into the schools, public schools, on Saturday mornings, and the children make the commitment to buy a ticket to see a show. We hope that not only will this broaden their horizons, but also it will provide them with a discriminating knowledge that will make them go to the theater or make them want to go to the theater when they grow up. Not just for the hit show and not just for a birthday, but because the theater is important to them. And we think that's very important, not only to us, but to the theater. Then we have our hospital program. That sends, again, live Broadway, off-off-Broadway and cabaret acts to hospitals from Mount Sinai to veterans' hospitals to the Actors' Fund home. And we provide entertainment and theater. Again, the emphasis is on theater to those that cannot come out to see it. I'm very proud of the American Theater Wing, and I'm very proud to present these seminars, which come to you, again, from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's seminar is working on, in the theater, and it's on performance. And co-moderating is Jean Dalrymple, who is author, director, producer, and a member of the board of the American Theater Wing. George White, who is a director and president of the O'Neill Foundation at Waterford, Connecticut, that is and they will take over and introduce our panelists who are on today's program and they in turn will talk about what it is 
to work in the theater. Thank you for being here, and I will turn this over to Jean Dalrymple and George White immediately. Thank you, Isabel. Uh, I'll begin by introducing the gentleman at my far left, who is an old friend of mine and very beloved in, amongst theater people. He's from Great Britain, and he represents many of Great Britain's wonderful artists. Uh, we have known him in that guise for many, many years. His name is Lionel Larner, and right next to him is a young star, Matthew Broderick, who is now in his new great, big, wonderful hit. Uh, and uh, he's playing the same character as he played in Brighton Beach Memoirs, except that he's older now. And uh, he's in Biloxi Blues, which is when he went into the army. And it's very amusing and very lovely. Of course, they were both smash hits, but then <laughs> Neil Simon can't write anything else, I guess. <laughs> and right next to me is a very dear old friend, Jim Dale, and I'm sure you've seen him in all the wonderful things he's done. Uh, I always remember his Capino some years ago, where, uh, amongst other remarkable things that he did, he ran across the backs of the orchestra chairs. I never d could figure out how he managed that, but then, of course, when he was in Barnum, he learned how to walk on a tightrope. <laughs> so I guess that was just training. <laughs> and now he's in that perfectly wonderful hit, Joe Egg, Jim Dale. <laughs> and now... <laughs> you'd like to begin with. All right. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm, uh, I would like to introduce, uh, on, on my right, uh, three marvelous actors, and perhaps preface this a little bit by a, uh, a story. I hope that after uh, today, <coughs> we'll have a different uh, idea of the actor's mindset, which is best perhaps uh, summed up by a famous uh, apocryphal story, maybe not apocryphal, about uh, Will Kemp, who played all of uh, Shakespeare's uh, comedians and, and character roles, and it was known for, for, uh, for instance, the Gravedigger and Hamlet and, and, and this sort of thing. And he met uh, a fellow actor coming out of the Mermaid Tavern who asked him, what are you doing now, Will? And he said, oh, I'm in a new uh, play by Will Shakespeare. He said, oh, really, what's it about? And he said, oh, it's about this Gravedigger who meets the prince. <laughs> um, so uh, perhaps uh, we will get a little bit beyond that, I think, with these marvelous performers today. Uh, on my far right is uh, uh, Rosemary Harris, who uh, on both sides of the uh, pond, as they say, uh, has uh, lit up our theaters, uh, having um, begun is, uh, in the theater with Morse Hart's Climate of Eden and a West End debut in The Seven Year Itch. Also went on to uh, help Ellis Rabb form the APA uh, in 1960 and is currently appearing uh, on uh, Broadway in Pack of Lies. And between those years are many, many marvelous uh, and famous uh, landmark, if you may, if you will, uh, performances. Uh, next to her is a uh, young man who uh, is uh, a graduate of the Yale School of Drama and uh, a member of the Yale Rep who uh, is currently scene in uh, where he created a role at Yale uh, of Levy in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, he appeared as, in Miss Julie uh, in Atlanta and 
did the world premiere production of Ionesco's Man with Bags in Baltimore, uh, and that is Charles Dutton. And um, on my immediate right is, uh, of course, I wonder why they put it here because of my O'Neill connection, but anyway, uh, <laughs> a word from my sponsor. Uh, uh, the, uh, it's Glenda Jackson, who uh, again, on both sides of the Atlantic, has uh, uh, made uh, theater history, uh, being, uh, a lot of people remember Marat Saad, uh, which she worked with with Peter Brook, and uh, of course, uh, the two Academy Awards uh, that she has to her credit, both from Women in Love and Touch of Class, and is currently uh, Nina Leeds in, of course, uh, Strange Interlude. So that is our panel for the day, and it's nice to be in such illustrious company. <laughs> and I think that, uh, as usual, we'll begin way over there with Rosemary Harris <coughs> and ask her how she began in this remarkable career. Oh, dear. <laughs> From the very beginning? From the very beginning. Sure. <clears throat> you can skip. Oh, yeah. Um, well, um, I'll make it very brief, I hope. My first performance that I remember giving, I probably gave some earlier than this, but I was four years old. And <laughs> <laughs> I played the Queen in the Dance of the Seven Veils. It was in a production that my sister um, produced. <laughs> um, she was 12 and she played Salome, of course, she had the better role. <laughs> Mine was a non-speaking part, but it was a wonderful part. One should never denigrate non-speaking roles, I realize, because there's a moment when my sister was about to remove the seventh living room curtain. And <laughs> Uh, the king was sitting on his throne, he was also 12, and <coughs> on the record it said the veil was about to come off and the queen came walking in, and that was my cue to come in, and I can remember it very, very distinctly as if it was yesterday. And all I had to do was to walk with my crown on in my train and right across the stage, well, some sort of stage, I don't know what it was, turn around and with great disdain walk out again. So that was my early beginning. <laughs> <laughs> But when did you really want to become a professional? Well, uh, that sort of happened gradually. I didn't think I wanted to be an actress. Um, I knew I wanted to act. Um, <laughs> again, my older sister, who was always eight years ahead of me, um, went to RADA, which is a, a training school in England. And um, I was a serious little 11-year-old, and I used to see all these long-haired bohemian young men and women come to the house who were rather students and I looked at them rather disparagingly and I thought I don't think I want to grow up and be one of those and they seemed awfully flighty and um, not practice serious and um, so I thought I don't think I want to be one of those <laughs> but I knew I wanted to act and somehow when I started acting I found that actors were anything but like that they were very hard-working dedicated people there wasn't time to be flighty or, or anything or pose or do anything, you just did your hard work and got on with it. Well, what did you do about it? Mm? What did you do about it? I'm sorry, um, I've lost my voice. Well, I <laughs> went in the opposite direction. I tried everything I could not to be an actress. I started training as a nurse, um, and I decided I wanted a career, but I decided that nursing, the more of a career you had, the less nursing you actually did. You ended up pushing a pen in a... In a in an office somewhere, and you weren't on the one-to-one -one basis with a human being. 
So I decided not to do that, and then I was going to be a physiotherapist because I thought you could only do physiotherapy on a one-to-one -one basis. You can't <laughs> do that sitting behind a desk. But that was rather expensive, and I didn't have the funds. And that was when my older sister, who had since retired and was raising a family, said, well, come on, you've always liked acting. Why don't you go on the stage? And I said, oh, no, I can't. And she said, oh, yes, you can. You know, she said, oh, you can. I said, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I finally wrote, there was a small repertory company in my hometown of Bognor Regis, which is a small south coast town in England. And there was a little company on the pier, and a man ran it. And I wrote to him, and I said, I remember the letter very well. I said, before I wasted time and money on an academical training, perhaps he could see me. I didn't even know the word audition, but, uh, and tell me if I had any ability. And I dressed for the part, and I wanted to show I was very serious. And I went into the local bookshop, and I bought a book on psychology, which I put on the top of my shopping basket. <laughs> I don't think I ever opened it, but I wanted him to think that I was a very serious-minded young woman. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so you see, it's all pretense, isn't it? You see? <laughs> uh, if I may, there's an, there's an, I wonder if you, you uh, have analyzed, or since you, you said you wanted to go into nursing originally, mm -hmm. uh, whether the corollary, the, the, uh, the basic mindset, which is that of interest in human beings, and physiotherapy and all of those things that go into the actor's mental furniture, if you will, yes. uh, might indeed relate there. Mm -hmm. it, it intrigues me when you said that because uh, so often, obviously, the actor's study is certainly mankind. It's not uh, molecular biology necessarily. Right. Um, if you found that, have you ever analyzed that as being uh, or, or thought that perhaps the the same mindset that brought you to nursing then you know, brought you on to, to acting? I think it's possible. Um, every morning I worked in a ward. Um, it, they weren't private, nurse, uh, private uh, dressing rooms, I was going to say. Private, um, what are they called? <laughs> Rums. <laughs> um, it was a big, big, long ward. It was a male medical ward, which meant that surgical people came in and they were operated on and they got better and they left but the medical ward alas they stayed there and often died sometimes of bed sores mm -hmm. and it was a long ward it was the county the state hospital and all the way down with these iron beds and one made an entrance every morning one began to realize and it was very important that you came on with some sort of attitude of happiness some sh some presence to lift up their day and one made an entrance and then you also made an exit and it was fun to start thinking of exit lines you know and one would start making entrance lines and so I suppose it was a lot to do with that thing and then the sad part of it was when one had to dissemble and when somebody really was very ill or when indeed once happened um, somebody actually died and it fell to me to <coughs> tell their relatives and they hadn't known and they had come to see him and things like that you know I suppose I suppose that is all mm. part of it isn't it? That's all part of the web mm -hmm. that goes into yeah. acting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, somewhat similar to Rosemary, I uh, did a little work in morgues uh, <laughs> and uh, funeral homes. <laughs> it's an upbeat show. That but it's not but um, uh, I've, I've had a rather uh, strange and also unique introduction to the theater and the stage. I um, uh, had no theater training as a kid, 
um, I was always the show-off in the gang, but uh, never no real theater training. My theater training, uh, or at least my introduction in the theater, came in prison. Uh, I spent some time in prison, and uh, one day while I was um, discovering or trying to decide what kind of mischief I was going to get involved in, uh, a girlfriend of mine sent me a book of plays. And uh, I guess that was part of my um, rehabilitation. Uh, and I opened it up, and uh, it took me about maybe three months to actually read through the whole thing. And I read one particular play that really hit me as very comic. And uh, I got together with a group of the inmates, and we formed a drama group inside the prison. We had a captive audience, needless to say. So, uh, <laughs> uh, it worked pretty well. Um, I, um, at, um, that for me was a turning point in my life. I, at the time, uh, coming as a kid in the inner cities of Baltimore and being a troublesome youth at the time, um, I didn't believe in anything. Uh, the only, I thought it was more happening on the street corner than the classroom. And um, my introduction to theater that way, I began to read other plays, and so I became more or less a hermit inside the prison and uh, just reading Shakespeare and, um, and other classic literature. Finally, um, I was released after seven and a half years, and uh, I enrolled um, in undergrad school in Baltimore, and I studied theater there. And I uh, met a man by the name of Paul Berman, who um, was very instrumental in guiding me through uh, my early years of theater training. And I got involved in the uh, world premiere of Eugenia Ionesco's play, Man with Bags, in Baltimore. And um, I uh, sort of stumbled on things. Until I went to the <coughs> U.S. School of Drama, I had no aspirations of coming to New York. I uh, remember uh, this, it was a CETA program still in effect before all these programs were taken away. And I wrote myself a $25,000 a year job teaching uh, kids theater skills after school, so-called incorrigible high school kids. Um, and so my, my, uh, I was satisfied to, to stay in Baltimore and do some local theater and teach kids. And finally, it was suggested I try to apply to the Yale School of Drama. At the time, I was reluctant because I said, well, next convict, et cetera, and I'm not going to be accepted there. And I went up on the train thinking, oh, God, I've spent my $45 application and I'm going to take a long ride back and uh, a couple of weeks later um, I was accepted into the school and uh, needless to say that's the greatest theory experience that you could have in a lifetime those three years at the Yale School of Drama. Um, getting out and coming to New York um, it's been a little scary at times, a little intimidating, um, a lot of fun. I also was an amateur boxer and uh, in a strange way I relate acting to boxing. Uh, <laughs> uh, particularly in the last, in Act Two in Ma Rainey, when I'm totally exhausted, I'll say one more round, <laughs> one more round, and, and it's over with. If I can go all out this last round, I'll win the fight tonight. And, uh, and that's when you need it in that oh second yeah. act. Yeah, yes. What do you remember? What the play was that the first? Oh, uh, it play? was a play called Day of Absence by Douglas Turner Ward. Uh, a very funny play. We took um, the biggest, baddest roughest guys in the prison and had them play the women. <laughs> uh, uh, so it was, uh, and I became a despot. I was the director and uh, 
and I starred in it. And uh, <laughs> uh, so, of course, all, a lot of inmates were wanting to get in because the prison authorities were bringing in women. You know, to, <laughs> and of course, I know you can get in, you can't. Yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was. Um, I mean, the sad thing when I look back on it now, the sad thing is that it was uh, maybe 12 or 14 guys who were all in the group and uh, a lot of raw talent. And um, it was interesting. I remember um, when we all started getting out at different periods and, um, uh, and then seeing some of the guys when I got out and some were still involved in it and some weren't. Uh, but then the sad thing, the recidivism rate of you know the release and going back into prison, I'd say 85% are back in. You know, um, I just was fortunate enough to graduate mentally from that scene and uh, decide to turn my life around. <coughs> Here I am. That's that's interesting. I noticed that uh, recently there's been a lot of prison performing arts, and I think uh, it has paid off. Also, just parenthetically, the idea of, of boxing does not somehow seems so foreign because boxing in a sense is an, uh, is an evolution of fencing mm -hmm. which is timing right. uh, playing to the other person's rhythms mm -hmm. which is part of the actor's art as well so it does seem to, to relate I was glad you spoke of Paul Berman down there he's a wonderful man he directed an Ionesco play for me oh he did? here yeah. in New York the variations yes. on the same thing? that's right oh, yes okay. <laughs> Randall Jackson, how did you... Well, I think I slid into it out of boredom, actually. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there seems to be a strong medical slant this end of the... <laughs> yeah. um, we've had a nurse and a mortician, <laughs> a morgue attendant, and I left school and I had to get a job, and I got a job in a, a local chemist shop, I think you call them druggists. And I worked there for two years, and I felt that I could not only have run the store single-handed, but the whole chain of... <laughs> but they didn't seem to want to give that opportunity to me. And a friend of mine was a member of a local amateur group and said, come along, it's fun. And I went along, and indeed I did find it interesting. And somebody said to me, as I think they always do, you should take this up professionally. And so because I was extremely bored with my chemist shop life, I wrote to the only drama school I'd ever heard of, which was RADA, the Royal... Academy of Dramatic Art, and because there was no money, I had to get a scholarship as well as acceptance. So I did two auditions down in London, which my family thought they were waving goodbye to me forever. They thought it was the wickedest city in the world, and I'd never been away from home before. And I did indeed get a scholarship, and I got a grant from my local education authority, which covered the financial difficulties. And I was in London then training for two years to, to be an actress, and it was... An, it wasn't remarkable at the time, but I suppose it is always the benefit of hindsight. It is remarkable looking back now that it was the first time I'd ever been with a group of pretty much the same age people, all who were interested in the same thing. And uh, it was, I realize now, a very valuable experience because the lesson that I learned then and which I think is the most valuable one is that actors are their own instrument. You're as good as you make yourself be. I mean, we don't have violins or bases or anything external, <coughs> our capacity to transmit the author's intent as directly and as openly as possible to the audience um, is entirely dependent on our preparedness for it, the, the flexibility and the speed with which this instrument, this envelope, um, can respond to that author's ideas. So that was very valuable. What was your first... Uh 
My very first professional job was in a rep on the south coast of England, a place called Worthing, which is Brighton's poor relation, um, in separate tables. And I played one of the two students oh, yes. in that. And they didn't actually, they kept me there for a month, but I didn't play every play because it was cheaper to rehearse me, play me than um, rehearse me, play me, play me, play me, if you see what I mean. And then I did a, another play called Doctor in the House, and then I went off and did a, a round of um, reps, really, all over England, which was more, I think, out of work than in work for about eight years. And I went to every audition for every major company and never, ever got a job. I don't think I ever got a job through an audition in my life. <laughs> and eventually, by a, a variety of extraordinary accidents, was um, taken on by Peter Brook for what became known eventually as the Theatre of Cruelty. And from that, we were, that small group of 12 actors were co-opted into the Royal Shakespeare Company proper. And that <coughs> led to the Marassade. And then I was in the happy position of being asked for, as opposed to having always to pursue work. <laughs> when you said that, that you had an audition, that primarily you mean that you, you, most of the time you were actually asked for. Yes. No, uh, what I mean, I mean, I, well, yes, I mean, people I would ask. I mean, when they were desperate, quite often they'd say, all right, we'll take her. Yes. Uh, <laughs> 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 yes. But, um, but the, I mean, the big subsidized houses always have regular, had and still do regular auditions every year, and everybody was sent along and auditioned, and I never got a job with the RSC that way, or the National or with the Royal Court. But there was a wonderful casting woman, who alas is now dead, called Miriam Brickman, who was the casting woman for the Royal Court Theatre. And she was always suggesting me to directors. And as I say, when they were desperate and nobody else would do the job, they'd say, all right, we'll take her. <laughs> but when I left drama school, I was told by the then um, president of the drama school, a, a wonderful director called John Fernald, not to expect to work much before I was 40 because I was essentially a character actress. <laughs> and that, I left, it was, it was sort of mid-50s and it was before John Osborne's look back in anger. And that was a very sensible assessment of the British theatre at that time. There was no place for people like me. And then Osborne wrote look back in anger and the whole of British theatre changed and, mm -hmm. and I didn't have to wait till I was 40. Close, <laughs> but not at <laughs> Well, here, let us hear some more about British theatre. How did you start? Oh, I, actually, I started by accident. Um, I'd studied dancing for about six years as a child because I was very interested in going on stage. Um, and my father suggested I learn to move, and uh, I don't know where he got that information from, um, but it turned out to be one of the greatest, wonderful things anybody has ever told me at an early age, learn to move, because that's what acting is all about, movement. and. Uh, I studied dancing for six years, and then I thought, well, this is all very well, but I'm not making people laugh. So I, I, I heard of a show, a touring show, called Carol Levis and His Discoveries, which Glenda will know about. <laughs> but, uh, and they sort of pick up a lot of local talent and put it on for that week, and then if you're good enough, they'll take you on tour with them to make up the second half of the show, which are the, the residents. And I went along there with my new impressions. I, I decided to be an impressionist at the age of 16 and a half <laughs> and I thought my impressions were wonderful because they were slightly different. Um, I didn't think it was funny to do impressions of people you knew, famous film stars, so I, I would do an impression of my mother's butcher. <laughs> <laughs> and the insurance man. And I knew that that was a funny idea 
I didn't realize it wouldn't get last, but I thought it was a <laughs> idea. And I had a whole group of these strange people. And I walked onto the stage at the, at the audition, um, to this first professional stage, and it had huge curtains at the side. And my foot caught <laughs> in the curtain, and that was my first pratfall <laughs> on stage. And I, I hurt my face, banged my nose, and uh, the audience roared. <laughs> Not because it was funny, but because they'd come for an audition and they knew that I hadn't got it. That gave them a better chance. Um, so I did my impressions, and afterwards the Carol Levis said, well, they were absolutely terrible, atrocious, the worst impression we've ever heard, but the fall you did when you came on was brilliant. <laughs> Can you get an act where you fall over? <laughs> At the age of 16, you want an act where you fall over? I'll give you an act where you fall over. So that evening I went back with a nine-minute act where I fell over. Um, <laughs> It sounds quite easy, but it, it was a bit tricky. I said to Carol Levis, please um, introduce me as a young man you didn't have time to see in the afternoon, and you were giving him his first opportunity tonight. And then as you introduced my name, which was Jim Smith in those days. Wonderful. Smith. Um, when, I, when you announce my name, you'll hear shouting in the wings. It'll be me saying, no, I can't, I don't want to. And then scuffle, scuffle, scuffle. And I've got four stagehands who are going to throw me on. And he said, and that is your entrance? I said, yes, I'll probably, hopefully, land center stage. And then you can walk off, and I'll take it from there. Well, you know, I did. I landed center stage. It was two and a half somersaults through the air. <laughs> Terrible. I was in agony. But the audience loved it. There was this nut on the floor standing up. Now, couldn't get away. He had a captive audience. And I did a four or five-minute act. I was innocent. I was young. I couldn't use any blue material. I had to rely upon very clean jokes, which not many people appreciate, um, <laughs> especially, see, this, this was this music hall, but not, not like your vaudeville, it was music hall, solo acts going around the country, and I joined Carol Levis, and I toured with him as one of the young juvenile comedians, and every Friday they had auditions, two or three hundred local people would come along, all desperately eager to become part of the resident, and I would sit at the back like this, hoping that there wouldn't be a young 16 and a half year old tumbler because I would be out. You know, one week's notice, I would be back in my little town. But I survived that, and uh, I suppose the experience of that was unbelievable because it was the last um, era of the music hall prior to television becoming very popular and prior to the theaters being sold as bingo halls or as television studios. But I spent two years of my life, two and a half years of my early life in a different theater every week, and nine times out of 10, a Sunday matin, a Sunday theater. So um, the experience of working the same material to various different audiences throughout the, the uh, British Isles made me realize that audiences think differently, audiences behave differently, areas. And it was unbelievable the amount of experience that I was able to uh, draw on. Um, in later years, purely from those two and a half years as a, as a young comic. Extremely colleague. important. Yeah. Matthew, would you like to start in? <coughs> yeah. <coughs> Most of us know how you started, but tell us again. Uh, well, the um, first time I remember wanting to be an actor, and I don't know why the thought came into my head, but I remember we were, I was in school, and we were, I was, I think, five, four or five years old, and we got little library cards that, that we had to fill out so we could get books. 
and it said occupation on it, and I wrote actor. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So I was five, and I was set, you know, and I got a smoking jacket. And, um, but then, then I didn't really do anything about it, you know, and uh, when I was seven, uh, my father was doing a play in Stockbridge, I think, and said, okay, actor, there's a, there's a part, you know? And just the idea of actually doing it was so unbelievably terrifying to me that I cried right on the phone, I mean, just screaming. And uh, stayed away from the theater until I was 15. I mean, I was very, very afraid of it. And the high school I went to, I went because they had a good theater. But my whole first year there, I was too afraid to audition to use that theater. I mean, I wouldn't even, I didn't want to even go into the theater and audition. But the second year I was there, I finally, I had nothing to do and I had to do it. And I, I auditioned for A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I got the part of Wall, you know. And uh, I, I just, ha I, had to, I had the part, so I had to do it. And I made the costume and I painted all the bricks on it. And... I remember having this wonderful idea and I went into the park across the street and clipped pieces of a bush and uh, stapled them, so <laughs> a vine growing on me. And uh, so I started to think I'm, I'm pretty good, you know, because I thought of that. And, uh, I, and I, I do remember, I do remember a moment on stage while somebody else was talking and me thinking, I sort of like this. I, I remember that that light when you're on the stage and it's dark around you and there's a light and there's a, there's a whole atmosphere and I, I really very vividly remember my first experience with that and I thought this is I really like this and and I thought you know I think I, I would like to try and do it and um, as I as I went through more of high school I got worse and worse at high school and better and better at the theater so my grades went really, and, and uh, by the end, when other people were going to college, I said, I'm going to try and be an actor for a year. Uh, and if it doesn't work out, I will go to college. But um, thank God it worked out, so I didn't, I didn't have anything. Didn't your father have anything to do with this? Oh, yeah. Um, well, he offered me that part when I was seven. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. He also, I mean, all through it was coming and watching every play, and you know, I think the reason I wanted to be an actor when I was five might have been because my dad was. Him, yeah. I mean, why else would a five-year-old yeah. want to be an actor? He was a wonderful uh, actor. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I would imagine growing up in that household, you must have at least heard uh, shop sure. talk. Well, yeah, and I used to travel with him through the country. Uh, I did, I was terrified to be on the stage, but I loved being around it. Mm -hmm. I loved being backstage and talking to actors and. You can, you know, on the road like that, when you're a little kid, you can sort of become their little puppy. Yeah. I, I love that. And I think that's what, why I liked that feeling partly. I, I mean, that feeling of being on stage. I had always liked the atmosphere around the theater. But I think when you were playing wall and the light and all of that, you suddenly said, not I like this, but I can do this. Yeah, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> No, it's true, because, you know, at 15, you don't really think you can do anything. You know? right. It's not necessarily no. true, actually. I mean, I know lots of people who like it, but they can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
But tell us about getting your first professional job. Uh, well, my first professional job was... Mm, first really professional one was after, after I graduated from high school, I auditioned and, and got a movie called No Small Affair. And it was a leading part opposite Sally Field, directed by Martin Ritt. It's a and, pretty good uh, way to start. Yes. <laughs> well, it's good and bad, because uh, I was, I mean, if you think of a 19-year-old suddenly in a lead of, of a, in the lead of a big, expensive well, movie yeah. with that kind of pressure, was, I think, actually not such a good way to start. And uh, um, as a matter of fact, two weeks into shooting, the director was ill, and the whole production was canned. And it was one of those things where I actually went to the set sat in the trailer, and then they said, go home. And I noticed that Sally Field and Marty Ritt were not there. But the crew was there, and I was there. And I went home, and, that, and I got a call saying it's suspended. And about five days after that, my agent called me and said, it's over. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I thought, you know, I thought it was over. I mean, I thought it was really over. And uh, I didn't get another job for nearly a year. And, I auditioned like mad because all I wanted was some, some job, some something where I could be assistant stage manager, something. So I wasn't waiting around. Mm -hmm. And the part I got was in Torch Song Trilogy, which was at a very very small theater at the time, so it wasn't such a hard part to get as it would be now. You know, there weren't that many people interested in it, and I was just very lucky. I mean, there was no pressure on that production because it was. It had a limited run, and nobody expected anything from it. It wasn't like the movie where there had been all this money and people wanting yeah. it to be great. It didn't feel that way. And, it was and I started to enjoy it again. That was when it was downtown at the Actors Playhouse, I suppose. Well, no, it started on, on 62nd Street. Oh, really? Yeah, at the... <clears throat> I don't know what it was called, but it was four stories up and there were columns in the way. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it leaked. It covers a lot yeah. of yeah. 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 It could be anywhere. <laughs> yeah, but that, that was, and then that, that play was so successful that it became a, 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 a big job, but it didn't start that way, so no. it was very lucky and it was much nicer than the film. Well, how did you uh, get connected with Neil Simon and <laughs> uh, well, the real start of your career? I auditioned for Brighton Beach Memoirs. I read for him, and uh, he liked me and sent the director, who at that time was Herbert Ross, mm. to see Torch Song Trilogy. And he liked me, and I read for both of them. I must have read six times. And uh, I got the job, and I, I got that job and, and the movie, Max Dugan Returns, on the same day. <laughs> so I read for Brighton Beach, and they said, please hang around and read this film script. So I, I read the film script, and I read for that. And they said, now read the play again. And I read it. And I left, and the casting director said, you had a good day. <laughs> I, I had a feeling I had the film. And I said, you mean I got the film? And she said, no, you got them both. And I said, fine. <laughs> oh, I... Um wrote a letter to Otto Preminger when he came to England to make a movie of St. Joan, the one he did with Gene Seberg. And um, I wrote him a letter uh, in which I said that I could uh, type, drive, um, take shorthand, all of which were huge lies, and uh, that if there was anything I could do to help while he was in England, I was assuming that he knew 
nothing about England and I knew all about England, um, <laughs> that I would like to work for him. And to my utter amazement, he called and uh, brought me to a very terrifying interview in a huge mansion on Park Avenue that was the house of uh, Sir Alexander Corder. And uh, Mr. Preminger was a, a very, very intimidating man. And we didn't really talk. He just looked at me for a very, very long time. And uh, I was asked back to several of these interviews. The final one was conducted in a limousine while we drove around um, a part of London I wasn't familiar with at all, looking at huge mansions, uh, with him asking me what I thought about them as a home to live in. They all looked perfectly suitable to me. <laughs> out of disgust, he threw me out in the middle of Belgravia and um, then called up and uh, told me I was hired. And I asked what I would be doing, and he said I would be the casting director. Oh. And um, I had actually never been a casting director before, <laughs> certainly not a casting director like on a film of, of that quality. I'd uh, worked for um, a variety agent, and we had um, acts like Cavallini and his canine comedians. <laughs> and, um, there, did you work? <laughs> um, a man called Don Philippe and Marta. She was a rather, rather aging model, and he would sort of run around her with bits of fabric and pin dresses onto her, and they would walk off to the Easter parade. So I was suddenly installed in this office and given a script of St. Joan, and I panicked and mm. thought, what am I going to do? And I rushed off to Stratford-on-Avon and stayed up there, and I think the Red Lion, and saw all the performances and wrote copious notes about Vivian Lee and um, all of the actors that were appearing in that season, and then came back to London and did a crash course on all the West End theatre. And then I enlisted the uh, help of all my friends, and I would call them up and say, Rita Cave has just suggested so-and-so, what are they like? And then I would <laughs> stay hours and hours and interview all of the actors and kept a file on them before I brought them into Otto Preminger. And uh, he was so pleased with the job that I did that he gave me a very large screen credit. And I was known in England in those days as Larry, Larry Lana, but he wanted me to be called Lionel, which is my name. So I was called <coughs> Lionel Lana, and I promptly came to the United States seeking fame and fortune. He wasn't here, and the only people that would hire me were the American Bible Society. <laughs> so I worked at the American Bible Society diligently until my services were no longer required. And then I sort of lucked into a job with an agency, and that started my career as an agent. And you were well, never an actor? No, I, well, I was never an actor, no. And you didn't do casting for the Bible Society that I know of. <laughs> I should have done. <laughs> 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 there, there's such a, a wealth of background and experience on this panel, and we're going to get to it just as soon as we can. We also have a question and answer period, you know, that comes in in the second half of the program. And I'm sure there are lots of answers of how you got from, from Yale to hospital to the drugs. I seem to see a thread that's going through here, and I think we're going to explore that. I also want to know more about auditions, and I want to know more about how you got an agent, and you talking about musical is, is, I think, one of the most important things that's been said, because from time to time on the panel, we've had people say to go out in one and be able to capture an audience, and a different audience at each theater is the greatest experience, and now we do not have as much of that experience. But there are still nightclubs and all kinds of places that are springing up so that people can perform and use their material in different audiences as well as going across the country. One thing that's coming on this seminar, as more so than in almost any other, is that 
everyone has had a lot of experience. Everyone came to where they are, not just by accident. It started by accident, but there's much more to that. And so we'll take a short break, and we will come back to the much more than that and continue with our seminars and working in the theater. Thank you. We're back with the American Theater Wing seminars on working in the theater. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. They are being chaired by Jean Dalrymple, who is a producer, a director, and a author, an author as well, and is a member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing. Along with Jean is George White, who is a director and president of the O'Neill Foundation in Waterford. Our seminars today are on working in the theatre and it's on performance. And so that we don't waste any time, we're going to immediately pick up with Jean, who will continue with the questions of our panelists today and we'll reintroduce the panelists that are on our program. I'm Isabel Stevenson and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing. Thank you for being here. We'll continue right now, Jean. All right. On my far right now, of course, is Charles Dutton and I want to start by asking him about uh, being at the Yale Drama School and how you got this part in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom because it's a, a fascinating part and uh, uh, perfectly suited to you. Did you have to audition for it, or did they just say you're the one? Well, uh, sort of funny story. Um, I remember in the summer of 81, Lloyd Richards asked me uh, about coming to the Eugene O'Neill Playwrights Conference that summer. And being that I was a student at the time, I needed some money for the summer. And so I said, how much can you pay me? He said, well, $100 after four weeks. Plus room and board. Plus room and board. right. I said, no, I have to get a summer job. So I didn't go in the summer of 81. The summer of 82, he said, would you like to work at the O'Neill this summer? I said, not for $100. You know? So uh, he said, here, I want you to read a play. And I took the play home, and I got around to it a couple of days later. And after 10 pages, I went to his office and said, I would love to come up to the Eugene O'Neill Playwrights Conference this summer. Um, and I was very fortunate to be uh, involved in the first stage reading of the play. And um, it took uh, nearly 20 months to get a production out of it. And then I had just graduated from Yale and I came back to do... Um, mm -hmm. I had to audition um, for it, as all, everyone who was involved the first time in the stage reading. We all re-auditioned for the parts. Um, I would like to say, I would like to think that my stamp was on it from the reading. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we re-auditioned and Lloyd kept everyone on tenor hooks for a couple of days <laughs> waiting to hear would they go with actors or musicians. And um, finally, uh, the word was out that, you know, I had the part and... Uh, uh, well, as soon as you opened, it was a big hit up there. And there was a great deal of interest from all the New York producers, but it took them a long time to get the necessary money to bring it to New York. Mm -hmm. uh, I knew something about it because I'm with the New Dramatists, and Mr. Wilson's a member of the mm -hmm. New Dramatists. Mm -hmm. so, um, Glenda, you, uh, you started to tell us something about your 
very early experiences, but tell us about yes. some of your experiences uh, in recent years. What would you like <laughs> to know? <laughs> <laughs> I was theatrically speaking, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Picking up from that. Um, no, really, I mean, if I may ignore that question, because I can't actually pluck something out of the air at the moment, I'd like to go back to the idea of auditions and, and what it's like when you're beginning. And as I said, I don't think I ever... in a, Well, I, I will tell an audition story in a moment, but when you start out as an actor, and you are 99.9% .9 of your energy is spent pursuing work, and it is an extremely demoralising situation to be in, because you will be sent along for an audition. This is if you're fortunate enough to have an agent in the first place. And you are preparing yourself days before for that audition, and you go to a lot of trouble over the way you look, and you're probably short of money, so, you know, you have to save to get the fare, so you arrive looking immaculate as opposed to walking when it might rain, and you'd arrive looking a mess. And you walk <laughs> into this room, and there are maybe two, three, four people sitting behind a desk, and you're there ready to give them your all, and they look at you and they say no. <laughs> Just like that. You walk to the door and they say no. And, and they're saying no because you're the wrong height, you're either too fat or too thin, too tall or too short, too dark or too blonde, whatever. And that aspect of trying to get work in the theatre is extremely painful because you're never seen as an individual human being, you're just seen as an object, a shape. And if that shape doesn't fit into the larger framework, you're out. My one audition story that I'll tell you, I, as I say, I'd never got a job from an audition, but I was sent along. I, w I heard that there was this uh, program being envisioned by Peter Brook, who was a director I'd always wanted to work with. So I was told to go along to this audition, having prepared a piece of my own. I edited a short story by Dorothy Parker, which was an American Fifth Avenue lady sitting during the cocktail hour with a friend, bewailing her life and her situation. And I thought it was both wonderfully funny and very sad, and the character was an extremely sophisticated lady. So I did it, and then Peter Brook said to me, fine, now using the same words, you are a woman who has opened her front door, two men have burst in, put you into a straitjacket, you're being carried off to a lunatic <laughs> asylum, and they've made a mistake. So that's what I had to do. So I did that. So I did that. And then I waited and waited, and I had to go back and do another audition, this time working with other people. And then I waited and waited, and I did actually get that job. <laughs> Bravo. But, uh, but that, that's my audition story. <laughs> Has Are anyone... as painful as that? When, does, when yes. do they start? That's they don't, painful. ever. I mean, if, you, if you're called for an audition, there's no point that where it ever ceases to be that painful. And what I find always amazing about casting from auditions is there surely must come a point when the producer-director simply becomes blind and deaf. I mean, if they've seen hundreds and hundreds of people, which they do, uh, there has to be a cut-off point where they can't actually see or hear anybody anymore. And it is an extremely painful process, yes. I, I would like to, uh, of course, uh, go a little further. How, how do actors deal with, with the, not so much the audition, but the general continual rejection that goes on? As you say, it's terribly painful. It's, one must have to steal themselves. Mm -hmm against this kind of continual... They live... Uh, actors live with rejection, I think, day in and day out. Well, so, then so do most human beings. I mean, I think the, the thing I would argue with you there is, is the stealing. I mean, in a sense of putting up shutters to protect yourself. You have to be able to simply bounce back. But if there's an area of you that is automatically cutting off some kind of experience in that way, that's really more damaging than not getting the job. 
because that's the terrible paradox about acting. I mean, you have to be entirely vulnerable and entirely secure all the time. Because right. uh, if you're not that vulnerable, then you can't feel. If you can't feel, you can't express. And it's a very complex situation. I think that Frank Vangelo said very, very uh, clearly on, on uh, one of our seminars, in which he said, you must have a belief in yourself. Because just think, you come into the earth, into the theater, you put on your makeup, and at a quarter to 11, you're getting enormous applause, and you're taking bows. And at five minutes to 11, you're all alone in your dressing room, and you're taking off the makeup, and there's no one there, and nothing else. So you must have this belief in yourself without stealing yourself. I think that's the important thing, that you do believe in what you're doing, and you do believe in, in you. You're right. Does anyone of the panel want to ask any questions of Glenda? About auditioning? <laughs> <laughs> they don't need to know about auditions anymore. Should I wear a tie? <laughs> <laughs> All that. <laughs> but it what are they looking for? Who are they looking for? Uh, Lionel, Lana, I would say, you have to deal with, with uh, I mean, in, in your capacity, with the issue of auditioning, I would assume, or at least de facto auditioning when you're covering uh, performances. Right. And what do you look for? Well, uh, um, Actually, if I can rearrange your question, um, I have to deal with auditions when uh, producers and directors call up uh, for my clients and ask them to come and audition. And uh, frequently, um, we would take the position that uh, a client will not audition, that they're past auditioning, there's enough work on them, I mean, particularly if it's for film, there's enough film for them to see and that we will only take scripts to clients on offer. There, um, how well an agent does his job is, uh, you know, is, is how he guides his client and, and um, w how he gauges it. And I'll give you um, two, two examples that I'm particularly proud of. Um, some years ago, um, Hal Prince, uh, whose play opens tomorrow night, um, was doing a little night music and he'd sent me the script uh, for Keith Michel uh, to play the Baron. And Keith had uh, just won the Emmy for playing the Henrys. It was the same year that Glenda won for her Queen. And um, he asked me about uh, Keith and uh, whether or not I thought he would uh, do this part. And it was a Stephen Sondheim musical. And I said, well, how many songs does he have? And he said, well, th th they're not written yet, and you'll have to trust Stephen Sondheim on that. And I thought that was fair enough. And he said, read the script. So I read the script. And he said, what do you think? And I said, well, I'm going to send it to, script, um, to, to Keith, because it's also a policy to always bring to clients um, any offers that are given to them, even sometimes when they're very you know, menial. You, you feel they must be told. So um, I said, I don't think he's going to do it. And he said, why not? And I said, um, I just don't think he's going to want to play this man. And he said, Lionel, he said, it's the most wonderful opportunity. I'm going to put choppers on him and age him up. And I said, yes, but he's just played Henry. And he's a very handsome man. And I know Keith, he's not going to want to play that role. But I said, who's going to play Desiree? I'll send it to Keith. And I was right. I sent it. He turned it down. I said, who's going to play Desiree? And he said, uh, I don't have anyone. Um, but he was at that time looking for continental woman and uh, he said who do you suggest so I said well if I was producing and I could have anyone in the world that anyone in the world I would want Lily Palmer and he said that's exactly what I want he said you put your finger right on it I can't get Lily Palmer is there anyone else and I said there is and it's coincidentally a client of mine and I suggested <laughs> Linus Johns <laughs> and he said she's wrong 
And I said to him, well, why do you say that? And he said, well, you know, she's much too British. And I said, but you know how she was born in South Africa. She lived for a long time in the United States. She's very transatlantic. And he said, Lionel, save your breath. She's too British. Well, she had just opened in a play in Washington, an, an obscure Noel Coward play. And um, I can't even remember the name of this play, but I went to see it. And uh, Richard Todd was in it. It was the early days of Triumph. And she played a wonderful woman who manipulated men and she was a cabaret singer and she had illegitimate children and everyone fell madly in love with her and she looked wonderful in the costumes and she had wonderful reviews so I called Hal and told him about this and said I'm going to send you the reviews I don't want to go through all this bother if you promise me if you, unless you promise me you will read them so he said yes I will read them and he called me up and to my absolute delight he said Lionel obviously I must meet her and and see her so um, knowing how stringent Mr. Prince can be, and another um, um, gauge we have on how, in how strongly interested in a client is, um, is if the producer will put his hand in his pocket. So I said, well, you know, she's got to come in from Washington, so she'll have to fly in, and she'll have to stay overnight, and she'll stay at the Regency. And he said, yes, yes. So I thought, oh, he's really interested. So I called <laughs> Glynis up. So I called Glynis up, and Glynis said to me, Lionel, in England, stars don't audition. Well, I was absolutely stunned, because I'd worked rather hard to get at this audition, and I took a very deep breath, and I said, well, in America, Glynis, stars do. And if you're Angela Lansbury and you want to do MAME, you audition five times. I'd worked with an agency, and we were very involved with MAME, and I knew about Angela's you know, uh, history for the show. And of course, Angela wouldn't have to audition today. But at that point, where uh, she was still you know, considered a Hollywood actress and hadn't yet proven herself on Broadway, she did have to audition for MAME. Anyway, Glynis came in, and she read, and she got the part. And as probably a lot of you know, they, they watched her very closely. And before they went out of town, Stephen Sondheim wrote Send in the Clowns, based on all of Glynis's personal vulnerabilities and she won the Tony for it. And that same year, Sam Levine, who was mentioned earlier with Rosemary, had been turned down by Matthew's um, producer, Manny Eisenberg, for uh, The Sunshine Boys. And um, I'd read the play, and it could have been written for him. And I called Manny, and Manny said, Lionel, if he were the last actor in the world, I wouldn't hire him. And I said, why not? And he said, because he sued me. He said, he just, he said I had him out in, uh, in, in a play. And he mentioned the name of the play. It was an Alan King vehicle, and that's gone out of my mind. He said, but I said, well, what did he do? He said, well, he said, first of all, he slapped a young actor on stage. He said it was a young actor, and he, and he walloped him for misbehaving. And then he sued them. And he said, and I'm just n not going to, to hire him. So I wrote an impassioned letter to Doc Simon saying that uh, Clive Barnes had twice in the past season caught him one of America's great actors, and that all I asked was that he was seen for the part. In the meantime, Sam was on the phone every five minutes saying he was going to bring another lawsuit against Manny Eisenberg. I said, this is our place for lawsuits. Please, Sam, don't do anything at the moment. Anyway, I wrote this letter to Neil Simon and said, if you will see him and he doesn't get it, then he's failed fairly and I can't ask for more than that. So then Doc Simon called up and asked me to give the script to, to Sam. And uh, then he invited us to lunch and Sam was scared to come. He said, what if they're nasty to me? And I said, they're not taking us lunch to be nasty to you, Sam. So, I think that's wonderful. And I think you're but he got, but he got, he got that part. Really <laughs> but he got that part, and, it, and that was the Sunshine yes, Boys. That's wonderful. I'd like to do, get a little quick run through. Matthew, do you have an agent? When did you first get an agent? Um, <clears throat> I first got an agent when I was just getting. I was very lucky, just getting out of high school. I one of the plays I did in high school um, 
another kid in it, his mother was a casting director, and she came and saw it and recommended me to an agent. So I went and had a meeting with the agent, and that was Fifi Oscard. And uh, she sent me out all the time, and I never even So you just seen you at the it. high school? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just... Sorry, you know, it just Do you have the same agent today? Uh, no, I don't. No. What happened in between? Uh, we just... Uh, the, per- the person who worked with me at Fifi Oscar left the agency, so uh-huh. I didn't have any, my agent there. She, she's not an agent anymore. She became a painter. Oh. <laughs> House or art? I've thought about it. <laughs> Why don't we go on with Jim? Uh, well, I, may I, I, just, I just wonder, well, for anybody on the panel, uh, what do you look for in an agent? Uh, what kind of... Uh, <laughs> all right, Jim, go ahead. go ahead. What don't you want in an agent? Or what do you? That's interesting. Um, I, I was auditioning for... Uh, I did a three-hour audition for Lord Bernard Del Funk. <laughs> for Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, all those years ago for the, <laughs> the, the Australian production. And I sweated for three hours doing everything in the show. And afterwards, he took his big cigar out. He said, that's very good, Jim, very good. Who's your agent? I said, you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'd been with him two years. Um, I won't say that. You know, there are good agents and there are... <laughs> I, I've... When I say I've gone through a lot of agents, I don't mean that. You know, you can have a lot of au pair girls looking after the children. It doesn't mean you get rid of them because they're bad. They sort of wander off on their own thing. Um, I think that a lot of agents, or the ones that I've been connected with, and I know I didn't mention names, the fact that a Not lot guilty. of agents don't perhaps know where you want to go. They suggest where they think you ought to go, and you say, no, I do not do, I'm not in show business for this. I'm not in show business for this amount of security. I don't need that amount of security. What I want to do is to expand and to grow into as many branches of this wonderful showbiz tree as I can. And if it means going off, off, off Broadway because there's a man I want to work with, or there's a play. I want to do, I'll do it for nothing and I am not interested in doing that situation comedy series in Los Angeles that's going to cut my career seven years if it's successful but that's the risk you have to pay these days, if you want the money, you sign your name and you may make a lot of money but you may be committed to a very long time doing something that after a year or two is now making you older, you stay away from that if you have ambition and a lot of agents are out to earn not only money for you, but money for themselves. But I like somebody who can help me grow and is there as a, not a father figure, but somebody who has the experience to say, hey, why don't we do this and this and this? And this is the way Joe Egg happened this time. No waiting for an agent to come along with a big script. We had to say, look, let's, let's start something ourselves. What do we all want to do? I want to do something different than Barnum. Sucker Channing wants to do something different than the part she's playing. Arvin Brown wants to do this. Let's all sit together with our agents and let's start it from scratch. And we did it. And we didn't think it'd get this far. It went off Broadway and now it's on Broadway. And there is such a super satisfaction out of knowing that you were in control from A to wherever it's going to take us. Who's your agent? I haven't got any. I haven't got any. <laughs> I shook hands with a gentleman three days ago, a very dear old friend. His name's Biff Liff. Oh, yes. Wonderful man. So, Biff represents me. I, I've yet to uh, 
meet the rest of the people in the office. It's only two days. Incidentally, it's an extraordinary performance that you're giving there. The cast is simply wonderful. Thank you. Both of you. Uh, I'll go quickly back to Charles in a minute because uh, having seen you develop with uh, Ma Rainey from the days at the O'Neill mm -hmm. and, and then to EO Rep, in effect, uh, you didn't need an agent to meet Lloyd because he was the dean of the drama school. Do you, do you have an agent now? Yes, yes. I, um, after the fact, after you got the role, did you go right, and say, right. I well, need some help to run the film? Okay. Uh, uh, um, There's a moral there somewhere. Go on. <laughs> well, one of the, uh, the benefits of attending the Yale School of Drama is after the uh, three-year period and graduation, uh, they had the league auditions where the schools that are involved, the League of Professional Theaters, are involved and all the agents and the casting people and everyone comes in to watch. It's a madhouse. You get two or three minutes to do two scenes and uh, you go and you <laughs> run out there and show your stuff and um, and then you they, they put your name on a bulletin board, you know, William Morris wants to see you and ICM wants you and some people scream and shout when their name is not on the board. Others have their names on it a hundred times and never get an agent. Um, I had um, the interesting thing, I didn't sign with an agent until after uh, Ma Rainey opened. Um, and I, I, I signed with William Morris. And, you know, you get the pros and cons of a big agency. Well, you'll get lost, you know, in a big agency. You'll just be another picture and resume. But they were interested in me right after the leagues. And they didn't want to sign me at that time because they said it was a right and wrong way to go into an agency that large. You could become just another picture and resume. Um, if you're lucky to get some notoriety or some publicity and then come into the agency, then you have some momentum going for you. And fortunately, that happened. And um, so the team that I worked with there, I'm satisfied with. And, and what Jim was saying about um, wanting to do what you want to do and having someone to express that too. Um, uh, it's in interesting with Imar Rainey because I have a lot of offers that I've had to turn down and some of it is stuff I wouldn't do, you know, but it is the money is there. Mm -hmm. And um, they screen it out for me and um, they know, they realize and know now the kind of stuff that I hopefully I'll be able to do. And um, so sometimes the junk is placed in a garbage can where it belongs and <laughs> the good stuff is offered. and. Uh, Sometimes I can't take the good stuff because of the play. Well, actually, William Morris is, uh, is a marvelous place now, and it's really entered the 20, 20th century. There was an old show business saying, which is no longer relevant, I will preface by saying that, which is the reason they couldn't find Patty Hearst for two years is that she was signed with William Morris. Uh, <laughs> right, I've heard that one. Glenda, <laughs> um, uh, uh, does your agent... Uh, do the things that you'd like him to do for you? Yes, I mean, that I, my agent in England who saw me at an end-of-term show in RADA is still my agent, and that's more years than I care to say. Oh, that's and wonderful. And ever since I've been associated with Lionel, which again is quite a few more years than I care to say are the same. And, and um, yes, it is that they acknowledge that, you know, what you, you, you can really only be as good as you're interested, in my view. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Therefore, when you are in the position where you can choose work and getting rid of the rubbish is easy, although it's usually most of the stuff that's around at any one time, out of the stuff that's left that's possible, then you have to go for that which you think initially you probably can't do. 
because if you, if you don't do that, then all you're ever being asked to do is to repeat what you've done before. Mm -hmm. And that's the quickest way to never being able to do it again, ever, yes. that I can imagine. To stagnate, <laughs> yes. Mm. And are you happy with your yeah. agent, Matthew? Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do something different very soon. I, I, um, I'm very happy with my agent right now. He's, um, I've been with him for two years. And uh, he's also, he, he does, he listens to me, so I feel like I, I'm running it. It is awful when they get too, run, when so? you feel like you're being run by somebody. I mean, I think you both said it really beautifully. But he, um, he's, they also, there's another thing they do sometimes is when things go badly, they make you feel important. I don't know if that's a good thing, but that. I'm starting to think that is part of what, what agents do in a way. They, they protect the client. They make the client feel if something goes wrong, it wasn't your fault. They don't, they don't know, kid, they don't know how wonderful they don't, you know, I mean, that's, that is part of it, I think. Yeah. You know, just they, another little part, you know. They ease the rejection. They protect and, us, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. they make us feel like we're very wonderful and saleable. You know, they're salesmen in a yeah, way. That's in, true. In a way. I think that's they very are. important and, and I think that we ought to explore further the role of agent here. But what do you do in the meantime? What do you do when you don't when you haven't reached that pinnacle where you you can choose and you can relinquish that which you think is not good for you, the rubbish. How do you do you, should you continue working, whether it's in a a classroom, or whether it's in a, a, a up the stairs, off, off, off Broadway. What can you do, and how do you get someone to see you when you are not in the position of being sought after? I think that's very important. And, and I, would anybody like to take that line? Or perhaps you could quickly answer what you think performers should do, or perhaps somebody on the panel would take. I over. think. Um, I, well, I think that uh, performers should, you know, keep keep working. And uh, I mean, as Jim said, you know, if you want to do something, do it. Uh, you know, in, I, uh, in a loft. But I went uh, a few weeks ago to um, a place down in Soho, and it was someone's apartment, and he had totally rearranged it, and he had a, uh, professional actors, all of whom, you know, were not working, and they had gotten together, rehearsed a play, and somebody was working the door and taking the tickets, and it was really. Um, a terrifically thrilling night. I, they were all wonderful, and I came out of there feeling very uplifted that they weren't sitting around feeling sorry for themselves. They'd gotten together and done a play, and they were wonderful. Yeah. And I asked them up to the office to meet uh, uh, the agent in the office that works with me, and some of them are being sent out. But I think that you, you do have to just get out there and do it and have tenacity about it. I think we can al always recognize the fact that when a scriptwriter sits down on his own, excluding certain ones or certain <laughs> writers, certain scriptwriters or comedy writers, especially for television, if you sit on your own, you can sit there forever. But uh, we all know the results of having six or seven very, very um, clever, talented writers sitting around, bouncing off each other. The ideas happen. At the end yeah. of three or four hours, something has been created. It may be a television script. But I think that this, too, can happen with a group of actors sitting yeah. around. Instead of sitting at home waiting for that phone to ring, mm -hmm. let's all get together and, and make that phone ring in somebody else's And else when you're office. beginning, I mean, any job is a good job. I mean, when you're first starting out to act, I mean, just yeah. to, to practice at all is good. There's no such thing as, as, a, as a good or a bad job. To be working at all when you're first beginning is, is a great prize and a great plum. And, and I think when you, when you first start out in the theatre, anything that's offered to you, you should grab with both hands. And then if enough of that happens no. after a time, then you, 
you will find that there is something innately in you that says, no, I actually don't want to do that, I'd sooner do yeah. this. But, like tasting but to begin menu, with, yes. Of food on the menu. Sure. Every, everything, anything and, and everything and you and should I, take. I think it's good not to worry too much about getting seen so much, but just doing something. Right. Just doing something. Yeah. Yes. And because every time I've been gotten a job or been seen, it's been through luck pretty much mm, mm, you can't mm. really make that happen you can't if it was possible to make it if there was a formula there would be no yeah. unemployed actors just, but as we know the only thing you can do is keep sadly there are many many mm. Mm. too many <laughs> we're about to open this to questions from the audience and um, if your question has already been answered by someone on on the panel please don't ask it again and make them as brief as possible, and so that we can get in as many questions as possible. Next speech, come up. My name is Richard Grove, and I'm an actor. And I'd like to address this question to the panel. Uh, it has to do with the idea of professionalism. What is it, and how do you acquire it? I'm working. Would anyone like to grab a hold of that? Professionalism, I suppose professionalism is acquired um, through the many, many years that one studies one's particular craft. It, need, it can be anything. It can be that of a chef. It can be that of a, a jeweler. Professionalism. Encompass that with the fact that, as far as an actor is concerned, you know, to me, the secret of acting is just sincerity. I don't know if I'm quite making sense. All of these add up to a professionalism. Professionalism encompasses knowing that you are working with somebody who is not yourself. By that, I mean have respect for who that person is and what he's trying to do, perhaps at rehearsals, perhaps. But be aware that there are other people on that stage or in that rehearsal room. It's not just you. The whole of you, hopefully, can be that professional. You will all weld yourself together to make a double fist, and that will give such a feeling of security for all of you, and can create a wonderful feeling of company and belonging. Jim, would you say unity of good manners? Oh, yes. <laughs> well said. Yes, I... Yes. Okay. Well, uh, just that, uh, yeah, I mean, the, that you are responsible, <coughs> excuse me, for the whole play or the whole film, however large or small your seeming contribution is, and... Uh, and that's what it is, and that, that you go to work to work. You don't go there for anything else. <laughs> I can admire the amateur professional. By that I mean the man who only appears in amateur productions. Oh, sorry, the professional amateur. The professional amateur. Always appears in amateur production. He knows where he is in life. He's happy there. He's almost a professional. But there's one thing I cannot stand, and that's the um, amateur, professional. Professional. <laughs> amateur professional. We have a lot of them in this business, not just acting. And, uh, oh, right. I think the key word is respect. Especially not very Next. Hi, uh, my name is Edwin Gore, and I'd like to address this question to Glenda Jackson. Having performed in Marat Sad and Fedra, I think Strange Interlude seems a little bit of a departure for you. Could you comment on any problems or difficulties that you might have had in performing distinctly American realism, as in O'Neill? Well, I don't know why you find it a departure, and I don't regard Strange Interlude as being distinctive American realism, because I don't think that's what he's writing about. Um, the fact that he, he's uh, couching most of everything we say 
in easily accessible language from an audience's point of view does not mean that he has written necessarily realistic or naturalistic characters or that the themes of the play mm -hmm. have to do with overt behaviourism. Um, the, the major difficulty is when we were rehearsing it, for all of us, we thought A, we'd never learn it all, and B, how did you handle what have become known as the spoken thoughts, even though what they actually are are spoken emotions. Um, because they seemed on the first level to take away what is very valuable to an actor, namely the subtext, which you discover for yourself. But in truth, they're not the subtext. There's something else underneath that. And now, what is interesting about doing the play is worrying about forgetting your words or worrying how you're going to handle the spoken thoughts are the least of your worries. There are many that you have, every performance, but they're not those. But I think, I mean, I would not claim that Strange Interlude was O'Neill's greatest play, but equally I would fight anybody to the death who claimed that he was not a great dramatist. And if you are fortunate enough to be in an experimental piece, a strange interlude was in 1927, of, uh, by a great dramatist, you're extremely fortunate. Okay, my name is Rose Zubi, and my question is to the panel, and it's how important to you as an actor is the give and take between yourself and the audience in a performance? Well, if it isn't there, we all might as well go home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Jim, maybe because of your, we were talking about Blackpool Night earlier and other things, well, the relationship of uh, you know, I musical. started off my acting life as a comedian. A comedian is an actor. He does a, a double act with the audience, and that's as simple as that. He can create something. Certain actors, comedians, can walk on the stage and they just look at the audience and they've communicated straight away, i.e. Jack Benny. Other comedians have to walk on and they have to crack jokes for about two minutes to make that audience relax and feel comfortable, get to know them. Um, the communication is, is sometimes a little difficult. And in Joe Egg, I don't wear contact lenses as I'm wearing now, so I, I, I go on blind. And I go and I'm looking at the audience, I'm, I'm being very um, pointed to each one. I'm trying to pick people up. I, I try to make everyone feel as if I've actually looked at them at some point in the evening and everybody sort of, I get to know everybody. Um, and I can relate to the audience, I, I hope they're all smiling, I know they're smiling up here. But the other day I put my contact lenses on just to look at them. <laughs> and I, I went out and of course it's not um, a Neil Simon comedy, it's Joe Egg. And the comedy that I'm doing, later on they're all smiling, but at this very beginning when I looked out, the faces were like this. <laughs> they don't quite know what to expect. Now, for me to actually look into the eyes of people with that expression on their face, the comedy drains away from you. <laughs> Stand on stage. Too. So, during the intermission, I took the contacts out and went back out there. Um, <laughs> um, but communication, though, I mean, that's what theatre is about, communication. and. and uh, that's what a bad night in the theatre is, when there is nothing coming back from an audience. That's right. It's a yeah. snowball out of a window. If that energy that you send out to there isn't reinforced and returned to you, and so that circle begins and goes on right until the end of the evening, then we all might just as well stay at home and watch television. It's the lifeblood because, for instance, in Mauritania, a play that takes a lot of twists and turns, funny and then serious. Um, you know, that audience, that communication can lead you to greater heights in the mm. performance. But with the, the difficulty with Ma Rainey sometimes is that we have to control it. 
because they can take right. it from you. They try. You know? <laughs> and you have to really fight some days. I also think yes. another thing, communication varies in a different way. Um, some nights you can have an audience roaring with laughter, roaring with laughter, and you think, hey, and you take a bow at the end and the applause is, is nice. Other nights there is nothing out there. And that's the night when we say, ah, but they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> And you have to say that. You yeah. can't come off the stage thinking we've died. Yes, but we're equally dead. about that, I mean, sometimes they laugh and they're not listening. That's right. So, yeah. I mean, you've got that immediate sort of reaction then, but in fact, you haven't communicated anything. That's right. Because if you want them to take away something, it's the quieter nights that tend That's to do right. it. I mean, it's the balance between the two. And they laugh because they're frightened as well. Oh, often, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. I mean it. I imagine that's true yes. because of Neil Simon now, too. You yeah. Know, uh, what do you call upon? when you have the audience that you don't think is listening or is too frightened to You don't respond. rush to start with. A lot mm. of people think, oh, God, let's get it over with yeah. and go yeah. home. Yeah. You don't. And you don't make it bigger. I mean, the, no. yeah. on the nights when they're bigger. a bit, they want to be ahead of you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Then the trick, it's not really a trick, it's a truth. I mean, if you concentrate even more on the situation that you're in on that stage, if you make it even more of a real situation for you, you suck them into you. Mm -hmm. If you think, oh God, I've got to quieten them down and start making it bigger, you just push it's them further and further away. What's the, what's the, well, you can play hard to get a little bit with an audience. Oh, yes. you know, if you, if you, the second there's some quietness, try to grab at them, people get repelled sometimes. Mm -hmm. But it's also, I think, important to, uh, you have to have some kind of defense because audiences are bad sometimes and it's, I don't think it's always just, just you. And at least I feel better if I don't think it's just. <laughs> no, it often isn't. I mean, yeah, are, so you have to have many a thing with. Why. And sometimes you just go back to the play. And I mean, the worst audience. Go, I don't know if this is true for the other actors on this panel, but for me, the worst audience ever to play to are professional actors. Yeah. They are mm. absolutely dreadful <laughs> <laughs> because they will not let you do the play. They're so mm. determined to show you that they know how hard it is and what you've gone through and what it's all about, really. And th they're dreadful. I mean, you spend your whole night kicking them off the stage. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's really awful. How many actors does it take to change a light bulb? You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Do How it, many? Exactly. One to do it in 99 to say, I could have done that. <laughs> yeah, okay. There you go. Thank you. Would you like to... Hi, I'm Diane Cotton. I'm a student actor. And I was wondering, anybody that feels that they can answer it, any kind of advice that you could give to student actors who are trying to polish their craft and eventually break into the business, either in terms of the actor homework itself or in terms of the business aspect with agents or anything like that, anything that you've learned along the way that you could help us out with? <laughs> I think almost everything that they've been saying would help you out a great deal. Where are you studying? Adelphi University in Garden City. Just keep studying, I would say, and keep seeing as much theater as possible. Does anybody want to add to that? Well, the best teacher is an audience, mm -hmm. so it's a terrible double bind. I mean, you learn more by playing, but then how do you actually get the opportunity to play? But really, I mean, if you are given an opportunity to perform in front of anybody anywhere, take it. I mean, just take it. Yeah. Are, you, are you a comedian? <laughs> you do have a I just wondered, you've got a banana <laughs> sticking out of your pocket. Does that go in your left ear? <laughs> no, she uses the peel later on. I'm not, I'm not. I just, uh, it looks lovely. <laughs> Save the peel. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like to come out? 
Yes, I'm Marshall Factor from Theater Philippines. And someone in the panel earlier said something about the variety of audiences all over the world. Yes. Uh, being a quote-unquote transatlantic actress, Miss Jackson, which do you think is the harder audience or easier audience to please, the British or the Americans? Or for that matter, you said you were in China. Well, I didn't have the pleasure of playing to the Chinese. They seemed to me to be about the worst audience you could possibly play to. Because I was a member of an audience in, in a, a theatre in Beijing, and it was the ballet, and they, they come in late, they take photographs during the performance, they talk among themselves, and the minute the final curtain hits the deck, they're off. So the whole cast of the ballet was applauding a lot of departing Chinese backs, but apparently that is the way they, uh, they are in, in China. It has nothing whatever to do with the appreciation that they have for the particular art form that they're watching. I like audiences that let me know what's happening while it's happening. I dislike the English audience which waits until the curtain call before they do anything or show anything or let you know what they're feeling. I like the excitement of playing to American audiences because they're inordinately volatile. It's not enough for them to laugh. They laugh and do that at the same time. I mean, there's a huge energy that comes through. So you're always on your toes with Americans. But I think the best, the, the most, one of the most interesting audiences I ever played to was I took a play by Ibsen to Australia. And it was in Melbourne in 1974. And we got the reactions that, to that play then that it, it had on its very first performance ever. They were deeply, deeply shocked, morally offended by the play. And that was wonderful. I mean, that was really wonderful to suddenly feel what the impact of that play. So, you know, I suppose the, the greater the variety, the better. The more the merrier. I like it to be different. I must say, I, I will leap in for a second, uh, having just finished a production in, in Beijing. Uh, and I found, first of all, I was terrified by Chinese audiences for this very reason. One has to realize that the, the last bus Exactly. It's at 11 o'clock. And if you're and, not on it, and, you've got and to walk when you're doing Anna Christie, you're saying, my God, it's better be out because you don't want them to leave. Right. But there is a tremendous challenge in that because if you've got them, you've got them. Oh, they're wonderful. And it's I mean, a they, wonderful audience. This in that vast theatre was absolutely crammed. I mean, they were standing at the back. I mean, they, they love going to the theatre. I mean, there are wonderful people to play to. I'm sure this was, this was a ballet, and, and so there were lots of things happening. But the Royal Ballet were going to be there the week after, and I said, please tell them it's not, you know, they don't like you. It's the catching the last bus. That, that's right. And, and there's, they, they, they bring drinks in and all of that. But it's really more it's like a, a, dealing with an audience at a, at a, at a sport. Which is fun, yes, and I, it's a challenge. I mean, I suppose in a way it's a bit like when they first did Shakespeare, you know, where they all were there exactly. that day and they ate oranges sure. and talked among themselves exactly and so. fought each other. Would be is there anything like it in Europe, the countries of Europe? No, no, not really. No. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Shirley Sargent, and I have a question to Glenda Jackson. Are new plays lacking today? If so, in what way? Well, new plays are always lacking. I mean, well, I say that, I mean, new good plays are always lacking. And I, I don't think that that has, has changed markedly during my experience. I mean, the whole of British theatre, and in a way world theatre, was changed by one play, Look Back in Anger, which suddenly presented a whole new aspect, or rather a view of, of the world in theatrical terms, and that spread out throughout the entire world. And I think we're about ready for a new dramatist to suddenly shift the theatre for us all again. But I don't think one can dictate the arrival of creative change in that way. And if writers, really good writers, don't find the e theatre interesting to work for, then that is the theatre's loss. There are always people writing plays, but good new plays are always very few and far between. 
Thank you. Interrupt this wonderful discussion. There's so much more to be said, but unfortunately we haven't time for it, and I just want to say that this is the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And it's but one of the all-year-round programs of the American Theatre Wing, perhaps best known for the Tony Awards, which is at this time very, very important. But that really isn't the reason for the wing, and that really isn't all the things that go into making the American Theatre Wing the organization it is. We work with volunteers, and we need volunteers, volunteers that can make a telephone call, that can book our acts into the hospital shows, that can help on these seminars, can type and can do all the nitty-gritty things that one has to do at the office. I'm Isabel Stevenson, I'm president of the wing, and I want to thank this wonderful panel and our co-moderators, Jean Dalrymple and George White, for being with us today on Working in the Theater. This is a performance seminar, and the Playwright Play Script seminar follows. Equally, equally important. Thank you for coming here, and I look forward to seeing you again.